Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the honor of reading our passage of Scripture this morning. It's going to be Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 12. Um, Again, that's Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 12, can be found on page 43 of your pew Bible, as well as the handout. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and had heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression in which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, before we start on the sermon, I just want to say one thing. If you may not have heard as you walked in, but uh, if you walked in just a few seconds late, but Ben mentioned the worship team is, is stripped down this morning, and it's going to be that way for all of October. Just to say thank you to um, those who volunteer in those ministries for the last 18 months to do three services. We've never done that before, but we've been doing it to serve us, and so we appreciate that. And I and we were to tell them thank So Ben is leading worship. He's now back at the sound booth running the sound booth. I want to say something about Ben. Um, that you don't know what happened Thursday afternoon, most of you. But on Thursday afternoon, Ben went through his licensing examination, which is the step one of this three-part process towards ordination in our church denomination. And it involves writing this really lengthy paper and uh, several hours of being asked really hard questions by people who love to be really (laughs) precise is a nice way to put it. And uh, what I want to tell you is that Ben did so well, I saw something happen that I'd never seen happen before. I go four times a year for the last seven years. And when he left the room to talk about him behind his back, um, which is what we always do, you send the person out and you talk about how you're going to vote. And uh, the comments were so complimenting and so impressed with his character and his thoughtfulness theologically that they said, we would, 
want to make a formal recommendation to move from licensing straight to ordination. Now, they can't do that. <laughs> uh, but they said, that's the way we're going to recommend it. And I've never seen anybody. They didn't do that for me. <laughs> and I don't know. But they did it for Ben. And so if you see him, tell him congratulations um, and that you're thankful to have him as one of the pastors here at the church. I know I'm thankful to have him one of the pastors here at the church. Well, almost 50 years ago, a theologian wrote a book called Knowing God. And many Christians, including myself, still find it helpful. In the book's introduction, the author describes the predicament of modern Christians, us, in this way. He says, it's, it's as though we're looking at God as through a telescope, but the telescope's been turned around backwards. Thus, God seems very small. And so, this theologian said, then we become small Christians. In the book of Exodus, it's as though God takes that telescope from our hands and turns it around the right way. And then, as a surprise to all of us, it's as though he climbs down through that telescope and comes down among his people. And it's both terrifying and wonderful. Would you pray with me, and then we'll study through Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 to see all of that and more. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for the way that Ben leads worship here at church and inserts things like confession of sin as a way to be reminded that when we come into your presence we can't come in our own strength we can't come at all unless you would come to us which of course you've done in Jesus and so Lord I pray now as we study this passage we, we would just get a greater sense yes of course of our own, own unworthiness but, but, but more so a glimpse of who you are and all that you are for us as your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this summer, an organization reached out to me to ask if I'd appear uh, as a guest on their podcast, which happens every now and then. And, but this one was different. And, uh, the, the man had launched an organization to help men quit pornography. And I think through the process, process of their research and having other guests, they stumbled upon a book I had written on that same topic. But again, this conversation was different because this organization was different. It's not a Christian organization. It actually has no connection to faith at all, at least any explicit faith. It's what we might call secular in the best sense of the word, just meaning kind of ah-religious, not against it, but just not religious, which I found utterly intriguing that that's who they were, but that's what they wanted to be about. And so I was glad to spend an hour with the founder of this organization talking. And at one point in the conversation, I asked the founder um, if he had any experience with Christianity. And, and what that experience was like, he did, and he wasn't all that interested now, and that was another part of the conversation, but as he told his story, and he was describing similarities 
and differences between what he perceived to be, at least as he understood it, the message of Christianity and what he was trying to do, which had overlap but some differences. He said one sentence that has been haunting me for the last four months. He said that in his experience, guys in church don't tend to do any better in this area than anyone else, but church guys feel far more guilty about it. Now, let's let's role play here. You're, You're not you, you're me, and it's live. What do you say? Like, how do, how do you respond to that? I wouldn't say my greatest strength is thinking quick on my feet like that, right? But in that moment, I just felt the Lord helped me to answer, to affirm what could be affirmed. Okay, in some ways, there might be similarities there to what you're describing. I'm sure people do feel guilty. But then I added this. I said, that's why it's so important to know the difference between almost Christianity and real Christianity. And what I said on that podcast in that moment has everything to do with Moses, everything to do with Exodus, everything to do with God's deliverance of his people some three and a half thousand years ago. And it has everything to do with you and I. In almost Christianity, we know plenty of our weakness and our woundedness and our waywardness. In almost Christianity, we know that pride is wrong. We know there's a sense in which we should feel guilty. We know that God is holy and sandals or no sandals, we're on holy ground and we are not holy. But in almost Christianity, that's all we see. And the difference between almost Christianity and real Christianity is the difference as large as perhaps heaven and hell. What I'm trying to say is that if you've been around the church for long enough, which many of you have, not just our church, but the church, then you know pride is wrong. Pride looks in the mirror and says, okay, based on my own resources, I've got this. But related to pride is false humility. False humility sort of masquerades as true humility, sort of an opposite of pride. But it's not really best understood as an opposite. Whereas pride thinks too much about self in the sense of our own ability, false humility simply thinks too much about self, even our own inability. Pride and false humility have this one thing in common. They're just constantly looking too much at self. They can't get their eyes off of themselves. Pride and false humility, they take the telescope and they turn it around backwards if they're even using the telescope to see God at all. Pride and false humility decide either I've got this or I don't got this but neither is thinking much about God. And it's my suspicion that as a pastor of this church, our version of almost Christianity causes too many of us to limp along in this false humility. I can't do X, I can't do Y, I can't do Z, 
that God calls me to do because I'm not good enough. We can't forgive. We can't tell someone about Jesus. We can't give our tithes and offerings. We can't take a Sabbath rest. We can't have joy in the midst of a trial. Why? Because it all hangs on me and I can't do it. It's too much. Our church, like so many churches, is infected with the constant inward look to solve our problems. Now, what does that have to do with Moses? If you only knew Moses from the movies, you might suspect, of course Pharaoh's going to let Moses' people go. Because Moses is the man, right? Look at that guy. Staff, so strong, he's so young. He's really 80 years old in the Bible. But in the movies, when Moses rolls back into town and demands that Pharaoh would let not God's people, but his people go, well, Pharaoh's just going to roll over. But this is one place where the book is so much better than the movie. Because the real Moses, the Moses of the book of Exodus, the only true Moses there is, does at times have a problem with False humility. Looking too much at himself. Which as I've said, that's our problem too. And when we see though, the way that God treats him, the way that God treats Moses and, and gently just lifts his eyes, sometimes forcibly, but lifts his eyes back away from himself and towards God, we realize that the book is so much better than the movie. This passage in chapter 3 of Exodus, we've been teaching through the book of Exodus as we're going to do for some time, begins on an ordinary day as Moses is tending his sheep in the desert. Now, I know you don't tend sheep, most of you. Few of you have goats. <laughs> some of you might have chickens. Uh, most of that is a side hustle. It's not a, it's not a, you're not, most of you are not goat chicken farmers, um, I am thinking of one person that has a lot of chickens. But picture an ordinary day. You've just gone into the office. You've opened your laptop. You're looking at your email. You've just climbed into your work truck. You're at the store running errands. You've just walked into the gym. And all of a sudden, God shows up in a flaming ball of fire calling your name twice. You're not expecting that. Look at chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. You can read it in the Bible if you're holding one or you can, that piece of paper. Some of what I'm going to be preaching is on that piece of paper. Some of it will continue into chapter 4, which is not. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. He appeared to Moses out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, this is Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Which is strange. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bushes not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, now what's the tone of voice? Here I am. Or is it, here I, I am? I don't know. I think there's clues though. Then he said, God said, do not come here. 
Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You get the sense that Moses didn't expect God to show up. From other passages, we know it was 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, God says in verse 6. God repeats that exact same statement four times in these chapters. 3.6, 3.15, 3.16, and then 4.5, as if to underscore that Moses might have forgotten who God is. Or as though Moses might have had his telescope turned around backwards. Or perhaps as though he had put the telescope away in a closet and buried it under a bunch of junk. As though he had just sort of stopped looking at God at all. Many of you should be able to relate to this. When I say many, I don't mean all, I don't even mean most, but enough, I think, to rightly use the word many. You're wayward. Wayward in the wilderness of college rebellion. Waywardness in the wilderness of midlife. In apathy or overwhelmed. Wayward in the wilderness of passively fading into your retirement. And for many of you, God is not in the picture. And, and, and I will tell you, I just, confession, I have been praying that this church would be for you, as it were, God's burning bush. That, that coming here, in a sense, would be holy ground. Our God is the God who does these sorts of things. Our God is the God who delights. I mean, it brings him great joy to show up to nobodies that haven't been thinking about him for years. It can be terrifying to come back to God when you've been away from him for years. But it's also wonderful. Look at the promises God makes, verses 7, 8, and 9 there in chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, that land, to a good land, broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he continues it down into verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Note that phrase in verse 8. What does he say? Who comes down? I have come down. This is an Old Testament incarnation of sorts. A visitation by God himself. That's how the word visitation, I'll read it at the very end of the sermon. It comes from the last verse in chapter 4. Last week we, we read about how God sees and he hears and he knows. He remembers the slavery and the oppression of God's people. Last week we read about the groanings of mothers who have lost sons. 
the groanings of fathers with welts beaten across their backs. We read about the groanings of people oppressed and how those groanings have, as it were, wafted up to the Lord. And when the groanings of God's people go up, he comes down. Now, you would think the response of Moses would be, yes, hallelujah. That's not what he says. Look at verses 10 and 11. Continuing, God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It sounds so humble, right? It's not classic pride. I got this. But sort of another side of pride. False humility. I will send you, God says. And Moses responds, who am I? I can't do this. So where's his focus? It's not on God. Now, does God answer his question directly? No. I'll show you that in a minute. But to appreciate how God does answer Moses, you have to see how God doesn't respond to him. I was tempted to think that God would respond to Moses in this moment. He goes, who am I? I I was I thought Moses would respond to God, or God would respond to Moses the way that Mr. Miyagi <laughs> responds to the Karate Kid. Now I know it's, the movie's old, but there was these Netflix things, and it came back out, and it's still popular again. So Mr. Miyagi responds to Daniel Son. How? He says, "No, no, 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 no! You've been training this whole time. That whole thing about washing my car." And painting my fence, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, sand the floor. You can do this, Daniel's son. You were training to fight. Moses, you can do this. You've been training to lead sheep as you've been leading sheep for 40 years. Not to mention all that time in Egypt when I trained you and raised you up. Moses, you got this. Is that what God tells Moses when he asks, who am I? Now, I don't doubt the kernel of truth in this way of thinking. God is always training his people for future service. And Moses had been, albeit unknowingly, training for future service. This, however, is not what God gives Moses. He gives him something so much better. God gives Moses himself. Look at verse 12. Who am I? Moses asks. God responds, what? But I will be with you. Stop looking at yourself. Look up, Moses, look up. That exchange was objection number one and response number one. There are five of them across chapters three and four. I'm not going to go that slow through all of them, but they all sort of carry this same theme. 
Moses says, who am I? God says, it doesn't matter who you are. Look at me. That's number one. Number two, God says, well, what about the name? Like, when I go there and say, okay, it's about you, what name should I tell him? That's when God says his name is Yahweh, or these capital letters that then in most Bibles get reflected as capital L, lowercase, but capital O-R-D, the Lord. That's his name. He is who he is. Then Moses says, chapter 4, verse 1, but they won't listen to me. Me. Which is an interesting one because chapter 3, verse 18, I know I'm going quickly here, 318, God says, I will make them listen to you. Chapter 4, 1, they're, they're not going to listen to me. I will make them listen to you. They're not going to listen to me. Still, God gives them signs to do. He says, you're going to do some signs, they're going to see these signs, then they'll listen. And let's just practice them now, right? So they, they do this thing, and we didn't read it before the service, but, or before the sermon, but throws staff on the ground, becomes a snake, and there's this little detail. Moses runs away. There's a little line, there's a, Moses ran away. He's a shepherd. You know, so that's a deadly snake. And then God says, pick it up by the tail, which is not how you pick up a snake, but Moses picks up a snake by the tail, comes a staff again. And then God says, take your hand, put it in your cloak, pull it out, it's leprous. Put it back in, pull it back out, it's healed. And this is take some water, pour it on the ground, turns into blood, pour you know. And they do these things, like, these are signs, they're for you. They're going to know, they're going to listen to me, to me. Moses' fourth objection, he says, he can't speak well. He can't speak well. Again, Moses is preoccupied with Moses. God responds, who made man's mouth? I don't know if he said it like that. I don't know. <laughs> I did. But again, God, he says, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes. See how big I am. Finally, Moses doesn't make so much of an objection so much as a statement. Look at me. Look with me at verse 13, 14, 15, chapter 4. But he said, oh, my Lord, just please send someone else. <laughs> you, th- you feel like now we're getting somewhere, right? Just, just send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? It's interesting, the first time. There's another brother, another son God was preserving. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Even if you're afraid he's going to hate you because you ran away, like he's going to be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and you or, and we'll teach you both what to do. Moses says, oh my Lord, just, just please send someone else. Apparently, Moses just really didn't want to go. And the Lord gets angry at Moses. That, that, that is there. It's said. Okay, so we've got we to reckon with that. But I want to point out, his anger was slow. And the response of anger, it seems to only underscore the point that Moses should wake up to who God is. Like the anger here feels functional in the sense of smelling salts or like a defibrillator when like someone's heart isn't stopped and he needs to wake him up.
And notice how kind God even is in his anger. God sends Moses, his brother, Aaron, to just come along and help Moses speak. He says, I can't speak. Well, here, let me, let me help. Let me help. Look how kindly the real God in real religion, in real Christianity, treats his poor, frightened servant. I would just tell you, God will treat you the same if you would look to him. And when we look up to God, what do we see? We're looking inward, looking at Moses. Okay, when we look up, what, what do we see? Because as much as Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 are about Moses, they're really about God. Moses needs his attention riveted on God. We need our attention riveted on God. I said this in the first service. It's not written here in the manuscript, but think of this this pastor, Eugene Peterson, who who wrote in one of his books this line about pastors. He says, "The, the pastor is the one person in a congregation among all the other sinners. He's the one sinner who's designated to keep people's attention on God. Like that's his, that's all he, that's what he's special for. He's still a sinner, but his one job is just keep people attentive to God. What do we see when we look up? Just spend a few minutes here as we close. We see a God who is many things at once. God is holy. The word holy in the Bible means set apart, different. We might use the word other. He's just, he's other. We don't, we don't have a category for him. He is holy. Theologians will use the word sometimes transcendence, meaning he's above us. You, you don't come to God in the same way you come to hang out with your buddies. But God is also near As I said before, when the groanings go up, God comes down. Theologians call this eminence. He's so near, he's so eminent, he's so close that we can even know his name. He is Yahweh, which as best as we can tell from the Hebrew means something like, I am who I am. That's a name, isn't it? Who should I say sent me? Tell him, I am who I am. God is able to do whatever he wills because he is. Everything else in all of creation is by virtue of being creation derivative. That is made or secondary. But God is who he is because he is who he is. Look at it like this. All that stuff about the snake, throw, you know, the staff, throw the ground, pick it up, the hand, put it in, pull it out, the water, pour it out. All that stuff. You, you, you read that and you get the impression as though God is saying, this isn't even hard for me. Like, like this, this isn't even hard. It's sort of like, like if you had this toddler who's just wailing in this tantrum and swinging his fists and coming at the adult and the adult just kind of kneels down and puts a hand on the head of Pharaoh, and then pulls out a phone and just starts checking Instagram. <laughs> like, what, what are we doing here? It's that easy. And if we come to this real God, what happens if we come to him with our objections, our doubts, our concerns? With the real God, with real Christianity, not almost Christianity, but real Christianity, we see a God who's not brittle. That, that was a word one of the pastor elders used uh, with me when we were teaching through a year and a half ago through the Psalms of Lament. 
There's in the Bible these 50 or so psalms of the 150 that where people are complaining to God about their circumstances. He's not brittle. He won't crumble when you raise sincere objections and doubts. But what about this, God? I, I, I don't understand. And what about that? I, I, I don't understand. Can you help me, God? I think, I think the slowness of God's anger could go on for as long as you could bring sincere objections. Now, at the point your real objection is that you just don't want to obey God, he takes a different approach. But the real God is slow to anger. Don't miss this either when you look up at the real God. Who does he identify with? God identifies with the lowly, with the needy, with the enslaved. God could have come to Moses and said, you know what, forget the slaves, I want winners, you, me, the Egyptians. Let's roll with them. They're on top now. That's not what God does. It's not who he is. The picture of God that shows up all over the Bible is that he has wed himself, for better and worse, to his people Not because they deserve it, but because of who he is. This is the picture of God all throughout the scriptures, most especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the incarnation of God, God in the flesh, God coming down to us. Jesus identifies with our weakness by himself becoming weak. God identifies with our woundedness by dying on the cross when he had done no wrong. Like he was strong, but he becomes wounded. God identifies with us in our waywardness, not by acting wayward, but by being punished as though he had been. As I said at the start, there's a huge difference between almost Christianity and real Christianity. And when we lift our eyes to the real God in real Christianity, or better, when he climbs down among us and we see who he is, it's good. Or as God tells us later in Exodus, it's on the front of our bulletins and probably will be through most of the series through Exodus, Exodus 34. The God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Steadfast, there's that word we sang about. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And when this God, the Lord, the Lord, calls you to do something, he also promises to be with you. But I will be with you. It's a common refrain in the scriptures, actually. What might God be calling you to do in this season? Perhaps something that feels utterly impossible. It probably does feel impossible apart from him. Maybe God is calling you to believe that he's good. When everything in your life seems to say you're not good. Maybe God's calling you to trust the local church again, to invest in the local church when you've only been hurt by the local church in the past. Maybe you're called to begin a new job or make some other drastic change in your life or to honor commitments that you've made in the past and they're so hard and you didn't think you could ever have the strength to commit to those, but, but you feel like, okay, that's what the Lord is calling me to do, but you don't even know how to do it on your own. I, I don't know what the Lord is calling you to do, but as I said before, I hope and I have been praying that our church 
in our gathering, in our singing, in our preaching, would be for you this morning as unexpected and as holy as the burning bush was to Moses. A bush from which God calls you to look away from yourself and to his all-sufficiency. Let me read the last two verses in chapter 4 and I'll close. They go like this. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Not only did they not look up to God, or not looking up to God, he came down and visited them. And when they did, they worshipped. I think he wants us to do the same. Would you join me in prayer as our worship team, (laughs) big as they are, joins us to lead us in another song or two. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though it would be audacious to lift our eyes, even though it would be the, the appropriate thing to do is take off our sandals, whatever that means, to, 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 to take our eyes, cast them down, and wallow in shame and guilt. Although that would be appropriate, Lord, we thank you that you come down among us. So just lift your eyes. You invite us to behold our God seated on the throne, loving and leading your people. We thank you for this promise. In Jesus' name we pray.